Section 30 of A Brief History of Forestry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Brief History of Forestry by Bernard Furneaux. Section 30. United States of America. Early Forest History. The early colonizers settling on the Atlantic coast, soon after the discoveries of Columbus, did not, as is usually believed, find an untouched virgin forest. The aboriginal Indians had, before then, hewn out their cornfields, and had supplied themselves with fuel wood and materials for their utensils, and fires, accidental, intentional, or caused by lightning, had, no doubt, also made inroads here and there. The white man, to be sure, is a more lavish wood-consumer. His farms increased more rapidly, his buildings and his fireplaces consumed more forest growth, and carelessness with fire was, as it is still, his besetting sin. Moreover, a trade in timber with the old world developed, in which only the best and largest-sized material figured. Wastefulness was bred in him by the sight of plenty and the hard work of clearing his farm acres incited a natural enmity to the encumbering forest. The first sawmill in the New World was erected in 1631 in the town of Berwick, Maine, and the first gang-saw of eighteen saws in 1650 in the same place, while before that time masts and spars, hand-make cooperage stock, clapboards and shingles, formed commonly parts of the returned cargoes of ships. By 1680, nearly fifty vessels, engaged in such trade, cleared from the Piscataqua River. The ordinances, on record, which were issued at the same early times by the town governments of Exeter, 1640, Kittery, 1658, Portsmouth, 1660, and Dover, 1665, restricting the use of timber, remind us of the early European forest ordinances. They were probably not dictated by any threatening deficiency of this class of material, but merely intended to secure a proper and orderly use of the town property. The appointment of a royal surveyor of the woods for the New England colonies in 1699, and the penalties imposed in New Hampshire, 1708, for cutting mast trees on ungranted lands, $500 for cutting 24-inch trees, and in Massachusetts, 1784, for cutting white pine upon the public lands, $100, were probably also merely policy regulations to protect property, rights of the crown or commonwealth. That this last move was in no way conceived as a needed conservatism is proved by the fact that two years later the legislature of Maine devised a lottery scheme for the disposal of fifty townships, and three million five hundred thousand acres were disposed of in this way during the twelve years following the war altogether the states sacrificed their wild lands at trifling prices but when william penn the founder and first legislator of the state which represented his grant stipulated in sixteen eighty two that for every five acres cleared one acre was to be reserved for forest growth by those who took title from it that may properly be considered an attempt to inaugurate a conservative policy dictated by wise forethought, an attempt which, however, bore little or no fruit. Thoughtful men probably at all times looked with pity and apprehension upon the wasteful use of the timber as they do now, yet squander went on just as it still does. 
but the apparently inexhaustible supplies in those early times called for no restriction in its use at the end of the eighteenth and beginning of the nineteenth century a fuel-wood famine must have appeared in some parts of the country just as in germany at that time and for the same reasons the wood having been cut along the rivers which were the only means of transportation and hence the distance to which wood had to be hauled increasing the cost this was probably the reason why the society of agriculture arts and manufactures of new york after an inquiry by circular letter issued in seventeen ninety one published in seventeen ninety five a report on the best mode of preserving and increasing the growth of timber this condition probably also led the wise governor of new york dewitt clinton of erie canal fame in a message in eighteen twenty two to forecast an evil day because no system of economy for the reproduction of forest supplies was being adopted and he added probably none will be until severe privations are experienced like great britain at the time the federal government became concerned as regards supplies for naval construction and by act approved in seventeen ninety nine appropriated two hundred thousand dollars for the purchase of timber fit for the navy and for its preservation for future use small purchases were made on the georgia coast but nothing of importance was done until in eighteen seventeen another act renewed the proposition of the first and directed the reservation of public lands bearing live oak or cedar timber suitable for the navy as might be selected by the president under this act a reservation of nineteen thousand acres was made in eighteen twenty eight on commissioners cypress and six islands in louisiana another appropriation of ten thousand dollars was made in eighteen twenty eight and some lands were purchased on santa rosa sound where during a few years even an attempt at cultivation was made including sowing transplanting pruning etc this was done under a more general act of eighteen twenty seven by which the president was authorized to take proper measures to preserve the live oak timber growing on the federal lands under these acts altogether some two hundred and forty four thousand acres of forest land were reserved in alabama florida louisiana and mississippi but although another act of eighteen thirty one provided for the punishment of persons cutting or destroying any live oak red cedar or other trees growing on any lands of the united states no general conception of the need of a broad forest policy or even of a special value attaching to the public timberlands dictated these acts except so far as the securing of certain material then believed necessary for naval construction was concerned indeed the act of eighteen thirty one remained for sixty years the only expression of interest in this part of the federal domain in those early times the extent of our forest domain was entirely unknown and the concern of occasional early voices in public prints regarding a threatened exhaustion of timber supplies can only be explained by the fact that in the absence of railroads the supplies near centres of civilization or near drivable and navigable rivers were alone of any account that the earlier propagandists of forest culture received scant attention was due to the fact that conditions soon changed and with these changes the evil day seemed indefinitely postponed and the necessity for forest culture apparently vanished these changes were mainly wrought by the opening up of the west by extending means of transportation through canals and railroads 
and by distributing population whereby the need for nearby home supplies was overcome a continental supply of apparently inexhaustible amount was brought into sight and within reach meanwhile the population began to grow immigrants began to pour in by the hundred thousand and the westward stream opened up new country and new timber supplies and lumber industry of marvellous size began to develop the small country mill run in the manner of and often in connection with the grist mill doing a petty business by sawing as occasion demanded to order for home customers or export gave way to the large mill establishment as we know it now and with the development of railroad transportation and the settlement of the western country especially the forestless prairies the industry grew at an astonishing rate it is worth while to briefly trace the history of this industry for the sake of which the need of conservative forest policies is essential that the petty method of doing business lasted until the middle of the century is evidenced by the census of eighteen forty which reported thirty one thousand five hundred and sixty lumber mills with a total product valued at twelve million nine hundred and forty three thousand five hundred and seven or a little over four hundred dollars per mill by eighteen seventy six the product per mill had become six thousand five hundred dollars by eighteen ninety with only twenty one thousand mills it was nineteen thousand dollars in nineteen hundred nearly the same number of mills as were recorded in eighteen forty thirty three thousand and thirty five furnished a product of five hundred sixty six million dollars and in nineteen o seven the banner year of production the cut of twenty eight thousand eight hundred fifty mills was reported at over forty billion feet and the gross product per mill had grown to twenty three thousand dollars or a value for all of six hundred sixty six million six hundred forty one thousand three hundred sixty seven dollars in nineteen o nine forty eight thousand one hundred twelve mills cut forty four billion five hundred nine million seven hundred sixty one thousand feet valued at six hundred eighty four million four hundred seventy nine thousand eight hundred fifty nine dollars nearly half this product came from the southern states in the fifty years from eighteen fifty to nineteen hundred the value of all forest products harvested increased from fifty nine million to five hundred sixty seven million and in nineteen o seven the value had risen to one billion two hundred eighty million representing a consumption of over twenty million cubic feet of forest grown material especially after the civil war the settlements of the west grew as if by magic the railroad mileage more than doubled in the decade from eighteen sixty five to eighteen seventy five and with it the lumber industry developed by rapid strides into its modern methods and volume how rapidly the changes took place may be judged from the fact that in eighteen sixty five the state of new york still furnished more lumber than any other state now it supplies only insignificant amounts a little over two per cent of the total lumber cut in eighteen sixty eight the golden age of lumbering had arrived in michigan in eighteen seventy one rafts filled the wisconsin in eighteen seventy five eau claire had thirty marathon thirty and fond du lac twenty sawmills now all gone and mills at la crosse which were cutting millions of feet annually are now closed 
by eighteen eighty two the saginaw valley had reached the climax of its production and the lumber industry of the great northwest with a cut of eight billion feet of white pine alone was in full blast the white pine production reached its maximum in eighteen ninety with eight point five billion feet then to decrease gradually but steadily to less than half that cut in nineteen o eight southern development began to assume large proportions much later at the present time the lumber product of the southern states has grown to amounts nearly double that of all the northern states combined but not only the unparalleled and ever-increasing wood consumption which now has reached two hundred and sixty cubic feet per capita five times that of germany and ten times that of france threatened the exhaustion of the natural supplies reckless conflagrations almost invariably followed the lumbermen and destroyed generally the remaining stand and surely the young growth so common did these conflagrations become that they were considered unavoidable and though laws intended to protect forest property against fires were found on the statute books of every state no attempt to enforce them was made no wonder that those observing this rapid dissemination of our forest supplies and the incredible wastefulness and additional destruction by fire with no attention to the aftergrowth began again to sound the note of alarm besides the writings in the daily press and other non-official publications we find the reports of the department of agriculture more and more frequently calling attention to the subject in a report issued by the patent office as early as eighteen forty nine we find the following significant language in a discussion on the rapid destruction of forests and their influence on water flow the waste of valuable timber in the united states to say nothing of firewood will hardly begin to be appreciated until our population reaches fifty million then the folly and short-sightedness of this age will meet with a degree of censure and reproach not pleasant to contemplate in eighteen sixty five the reverend frederick starr discussed fully and forcibly the american forests their destruction and preservation in a lengthy article in which with a truly prophetic vision he says it is feared it will be long perhaps a full century before the results at which we ought to aim as a nation will be realized by our whole country to wit that we should raise an adequate supply of wood and timber for all our wants the evils which are anticipated will probably increase upon us for thirty years to come with a tenfold the rapidity with which restoring or ameliorating measures shall be adopted and again like a cloud no bigger than a man's hand just rising from the sea an awakening interest begins to come in sight on this subject which as a question of political economy will place the interests of cotton wool coal iron meat and even grain beneath its feet some of these according to the demand can be produced in a few days others in a few months or a few years but timber in not less than one generation the nation has slept because the gnawing of want has not awakened her she has had plenty and to spare but within thirty years she will be conscious that not only individual want is present but that it comes to each from permanent national famine of wood the article is full of interesting detail and may be said to be the starting basis of the campaign for better methods which followed another unquestionably most influential official report was that upon forests and forestry in germany 
by dr john a warder united states commissioner to the world's fair at vienna in eighteen seventy three dr warder set forth clearly and correctly the methods employed abroad in the use of forests and became himself one of the most prominent propagandists for their adoption in his own country about the same time appeared the classical work of george b marsh our minister to italy the earth as modified by human action in which the evil effects on cultural conditions of forest destruction were ably and forcibly pointed out among these earlier publications designed to arouse public attention to the subject should also be mentioned general c c andrews report on forestry in sweden published by the state department in eighteen seventy two the census of eighteen seventy attempted for the first time a canvas of our forest resources under professor f w brewer as a result of which the relative smallness of our forest area became known all these publications had their influence in educating a large number to a conception and consideration of the importance of the subject so that when in eighteen seventy three the committee on forestry of the american association for the advancement of science was formed and presented a memorial to congress pointing out the importance of promoting the cultivation of timber and the preservation of forests and recommending the appointment of a commission of forestry to report to congress there already existed an intelligent audience and although a considerable amount of lethargy and lack of interest was exhibited congress could be persuaded in eighteen seventy six to establish an agency in the united states department of agriculture out of which grew later the division of forestry a bureau of information on forestry matters dr franklin b ho one of the signers of the memorial was appointed to the agency it is to be noted as characteristic of much american legislation that this agency was secured only as a rider to an appropriation for the distribution of seed while these were the beginnings of an official recognition of the subject by the federal government private enterprise and the separate states also started about the same time to forward the movement in eighteen sixty seven the agricultural and horticultural societies of wisconsin were invited by the legislature to appoint a committee to report on the disastrous effects of forest destruction in eighteen sixty nine the main board of agriculture appointed a committee to report on a forest policy for the state leading to the act of eighteen seventy two for the encouragement of the growth of trees exempting from taxation for twenty years lands planted to trees which law as far as we know remained without result about the same time a real wave of enthusiasm regarding the planting of timber seems to have pervaded the country and especially the western prairie states in addition to laws regarding the planting of trees on highways laws for the encouragement of timber planting either under bounty or exemption from taxation were passed in iowa kansas and wisconsin in eighteen sixty eight in nebraska and new york in eighteen sixty nine in missouri in eighteen seventy in minnesota in 1871 in iowa in 1872 in nevada in 1873 in illinois in 1874 in dakota and connecticut in 1875 and finally the federal government joined in this kind of legislation by the so-called timber cultural acts of 1873 and 1874 amended in 1876 and 1877 
For the most part, these laws remained a dead letter, excepting in the case of the federal government offer. The encouragement by release from taxes was not much of an inducement, nor does the bounty provision seem to have had greater success, except in taking money out of the treasuries. Finally, these laws were in many or most cases repealed. The Timber Cultural Act was passed by Congress on March 3, 1873, by which the planting of timber on 40 acres of land, or a proportionate area, in the treeless territory, conferred the title to 160 acres, or a proportionate amount, of the public domain. This law had not been in existence ten years when its repeal was demanded, and this was finally secured in 1891, the reason being that, partly owing to the crude provisions of the law, and partly to the lack of proper supervision, it had been abused, and had given rise to much fraud in obtaining title to lands under false pretenses. It is difficult to say how much impetus the law gave to bona fide forest planting, and how much timber growth has resulted from it. Unfavorable climate, lack of satisfactory plant material, and a lack of knowledge as to the proper methods, led to many failures. A number of railroad companies, opening up the prairie states, planted at this time groves along the right-of-way for the sake of demonstrating the practicability of securing forest growth on the treeless prairies and plains. There was also considerable planting of windbreaks and groves on homesteads, which was attended with better results. Altogether, however, the amount of tree planting, even in the prairies and plains, was infinitesimal, if compared with what is necessary for climatic amelioration, and it may be admitted now as well as later that the reforestation of the plains must be a matter of cooperative, if not of national enterprise. At this time also, an effort was made to stimulate enthusiasm for tree planting among the homesteaders and settlers on the plains by the establishment of Arbor Days. From its inception by Governor J. Sterling Morton, and its first inauguration by the State Board of Agriculture of Nebraska in 1872, Arbor Day gradually became a day of observance in nearly every state. While, with the exception of the so-called treeless states, perhaps not much planting of economic value is done, the observance of the day in schools, as one set apart for the discussion of the importance of trees, forests, and forestry, has been productive of an increased interest in the subject, Arbor Days have perhaps also had a retarding influence upon the practical forestry movement, in leading people into the misconception that forestry consists in tree planting, in diverting attention from the economic question of the proper use of existing forest areas, in bringing into the discussion poetry and emotions, which have clouded the hard-headed practical issues and delayed the earnest attention of practical businessmen. Private efforts in the East in the way of fostering and carrying on economic timber planting should not be forgotten, such as the offering of prizes by the Massachusetts Society for the Promotion of Agriculture as early as 1804 and again in 1876, and the planting done by private landholders at Cape Cod in Rhode Island, Virginia, and elsewhere. These efforts, to be sure, were only sporadic and unsystematic and on no scale commensurate with the destruction of virgin forest resources. A touching attempt of two noble Frenchmen to teach their American hosts a better use of their magnificent forest resource, although of little result, should never fail of mention. 
André Michaud and his son, André Francois, who, between 1785 and 1805, explored and studied the forest flora of the United States, and published a magnificent North American Silva in three volumes, left, in recognition of the hospitalities received, two legacies of $20,000 for the extension and progress of agriculture, and more especially of silviculture, in the United States, which bequests became available in 1870. The American Philosophical Society at Philadelphia, a trustee of one of the legacies, has devoted its income to beautification of Fairmont Park, providing a few lectures on forest botany and forestry, and collecting a forestry library while the other legacy has been used by the Massachusetts Society for the Promotion of Agriculture to aid the botanical gardens at Harvard and the Arnold Arboretum, besides offering the prizes for tree planting referred to above. End of section 30